In previous episodes of Federal Andy, we've discussed money and politics and how decisions by the Supreme Court of the United States has opened the door to bribery and corruption in our political system. Then we discussed the profits, subsidies, and lobbying activity of the fossil fuel industry, which was followed by a look at oaths of office, how they are administered, and we noted that there doesn't seem to be much enforcement of those oaths or punishment for those who don't keep their oath. Last week's episode covered the various types of political systems in place around the world and described economic systems in an attempt to clarify them, since so many use incorrect terms, which may be intentional on their part when they're talking about these political systems or various uh, government entities on the news. It's pretty apparent at this point that money is involved in most of the issues we face today. And it sure seems the saying, money is the root of all evil, is accurate. It would appear that greed is also behind much of this. And greed is said to be one of the seven deadly sins, the others being pride, wrath, envy, lust, gluttony, and sloth. Greed keeps pretty good company, huh? We're going to continue with our discussion of money and politics in this episode by looking at how unfair and unbalanced the tax system is today, how it is tilted to favor corporations, and why it is so difficult for many average Americans to get by and have a comfortable lifestyle that is better than that of their parents or grandparents. I'm going to let you know up front here that I'm going to wander around a little bit in this podcast, which I know I've done in some of the earlier episodes as well. So while it may seem like I'm going off topic a bit, this will give you some hints on future episodes that will start tying all of this together because it's all connected. Episode 5. If you aren't angry, you aren't paying attention. Let's take a look at 20 American corporations and their profits and taxes paid as a percentage of those profits for the year 2018. I chose 2018 because that was the first year that the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017 went into effect. This was the sole major accomplishment of President 45's administration shoved through Congress by the Republicans in December 2017 by a mostly party-line vote, with Democrats generally voting against the bill. Media professionals, higher education experts, and think tanks condemned the bill, saying it would create a higher trade deficit, higher budget deficit, greater income inequality, lower health care coverage, and greater health care costs. History has proved them to be correct. At the time this bill was passed, Real Clear Politics polling indicated that 39% of Americans were not in favor of the plan, 34% were in favor, and 28% were unsure. 
One item of the bill that bears mentioning in particular is in regard to the corporate tax rate, which had been on a tiered rate ranging from 15 to 39 percent dependent upon taxable income. This was changed to a flat rate of 21 percent effective on January 1, 2018, just days after the bill was passed. The Nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, CBO, estimated that the implementation of this act would add around $2.289 trillion to the national debt over 10 years. So much for the Republican Party being fiscally conservative. This is another instance where they expect you to ignore what they're actually doing and just accept what they tell you. In reality, the Republican Party is only conservative with money when they aren't in control of it, because it makes the opposing party look bad since nothing gets through Congress. The excuse is that the bills Democrats want to pass suddenly must be paid for. That 45 GOP tax act sure wasn't paid for. And by the way, this is happening right now in 2022, and bills that would have benefited Americans greatly have been killed by virtually every Republican in both chambers of Congress, as well as two corrupt senators who pretend to be Democrats. The act also offered tax cuts for individuals, but called for those tax cuts to expire in 2025 and begin to increase over time starting in 2021. However, the Republicans made the corporate tax cut provisions in the act permanent. Did you catch that, America? Your tax cuts, thanks to 45 and the GOP, were temporary. But the corporate tax cuts are permanent. Remind me again who the Republican Party represents. We're going to discuss taxes paid in 2018 for 20 American corporations, keeping in mind this is after the President 45 GOP tax cut bill passed. Collective profits for these 20 corporations in 2018 amounted to $84-plus billion. At the new, flat, 21% corporate tax rate, these 20 corporations should have paid around $17.64 billion in taxes for the year. How did that work out for them? Let's see. These are all in alphabetical order. Amazon, $10 billion in profits, and they got a refund their effective tax rate came out to negative 1%. The $29 million rebate that they received was due mostly to a loophole in the act dealing with stock options for those poor, overworked executives. American Electric Power, AEP, $1.9 billion in profits with a tax rate of negative 2%. Chevron, $4.5 billion in profits, and they got a refund. Their tax rate came in at negative 4%. Delta Airlines, $5 billion. They got a refund also. Their effective tax rate was also a negative 4%. 
Devon Energy in the middle of bright red Oklahoma, $1.2 billion in profits, and they paid negative 2% as a tax rate. DTE Energy, $1.2 billion minus 1% tax rate. Eli Lilly, a big pharma company, $598 million in profits, and they had a minus 9% tax rate. EOG Resources, $17.3 billion. Tax rate, negative 7%. Excel Energy, $1.4 billion in profits. Tax rate of negative 2%. General Motors, $4.3 billion in profits. They got a refund. Tax rate came in at minus 2%. Halliburton, Dick Cheney's old company, one plus billion dollars in profits, and their tax rate was a negative 2%. Honeywell International, $2.8 billion in profits with a tax rate of negative 1%. IBM, $500 million in profits, and is this right? Minus 68% tax rate? How can that be possible? Seems that IBM had 37% of its 2018 revenue in the United States, but only claimed 6% of its income in the United States. Not sure how that's legal, but that seems to be what they did. John Deere, $2.1 billion in profits with a tax rate of negative 12%. Netflix made $800 million in profits and paid an effective tax rate of negative 3%. Occidental Petroleum, $11.3 billion in profits, negative 1% tax rate. Principal Financial, $1.6 billion with a tax rate of negative 3%. Prudential Financial, $1.4 billion with a tax rate of negative 24%. Starbucks, $4.774 billion in profits, and they got a $75 million tax rebate. Whirlpool, Corp Whirlpool Corporation, $717 million with a negative 10% tax rate. Sorry, I got tongue-tied there because I can't believe what I'm reading here. What does this mean? Well, it means that taxpayers are actually paying these companies to make huge profits. The actual list is insanely long and includes a wide range of companies from many different industries. Aramark, Goodyear Tire, Penske Automotive, and a bunch of others are on this list. All of these companies basically got to keep all of their profits and they got money back from taxpayers. Remember this the next time your representative or senator says they don't think you need help during a pandemic with a crashed economy. Or your student loans shouldn't be paid off. Or they tell you that we can't afford to raise the minimum wage or provide health care for everyone. Right here, folks, is one source for some of the money that it would take to help make these things happen. How many of you as individuals pay a negative tax rate? 
Now, that doesn't mean you receive a refund on your taxes unless they refund you everything that you paid in for the year plus gave you more than you paid in as a gift for existing, I guess. Among the Fortune 500 companies, some actually may have paid more than the flat 21% tax rate. But for most of those companies, the average tax rate was actually far less than 21%. So when you hear people say that taxes on corporations were too high in the past, and that would hurt business and job growth, remember that most corporations, actually very few, paid the high rates that are often stated with the intent of horrifying people into thinking, wow, government was really out of control back then with those high tax rates. The lowest tax rate for single filers and married filing jointly under the 45 GOP Tax Act was 10%. By the time a single filer exceeded $38,700 in income, or married couples filing jointly exceeded $77,400 in income, they paid a higher tax rate than the flat rate for corporations. So why is it corporations had a lower rate? These are highly profitable corporations. They aren't struggling to pay their bills. They aren't worried about how they're going to make it through the month. Those issues for individuals are very concerning. Yet that very real issue is ignored by Congress year after year after year. In 2018, the poverty rate in the United States was 11.8%, which is 38.1 million people, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. What kind of a society and government of the people allows this to happen, while extremely wealthy corporations contribute essentially nothing in the form of taxes? The Republican Party seems to be focused on lowering taxes for corporations and for America's wealthiest citizens, while doing far less for everyone else. If we go back to Ronald Reagan's time as president, you will see that he lowered taxes for everyone but favored corporations. George W. Bush also lowered taxes. The Economy Recovery Tax Act of 1981, also known as IRTA or the Kemp-Roth tax cut, set a 23% cut in individual income tax rates over a period of three years. This resulted in lowering the high marginal tax rates, which were the highest ever at that point, from 70% to 50%. Spending cuts that the Reagan administration planned on never happened, so the tax cut didn't pay for itself. The reduction was so huge that it exploded budget deficits during a time when inflation was nearing 10% and reduced federal revenues by around 9%. Congress ended up having to undo the tax cut with the Tax Equity and Fiscal Responsibility Act of 1982 that increased tax rates between 1982 through 1987. In fact, taxes were increased every year 
during that time except for 1985 and 1986 and resulted in what was basically the largest tax increase of the post-war period. The lesson that should have been learned at the time was that tax cuts are difficult to sustain for long periods of time and usually end up in requiring massive increases somewhere down the road. Tax cuts by themselves do not pay for themselves. But as we will soon see, the lesson wasn't learned. During Reagan's second year in office, inflation rose above 10%, as did unemployment, and the Federal Reserve, in an attempt to control inflation, which was out of control, raised interest rates to around 20%, resulting in a severe recession. Reagan's vice president, George H.W. Bush, followed Reagan into the presidency and signed yet another tax increase in 1990, despite promising no new taxes during his campaign for president. Now, going back a few years, during the campaign of 1980, Bush was running against Reagan for the Republican nomination. And he called Reagan's economic policies voodoo economics because Reagan insisted he could balance the budget, increase defense spending, and cut taxes all at the same time. Well, he couldn't. One of the major complaints Republicans slammed Democratic President Jimmy Carter on was the huge deficit when he left office. But the fact is, Ronald Reagan handed George H.W. Bush an even higher deficit when he left office than he had inherited from Carter. This should explode the pretense of the glorious economy of the Reagan years that conservatives love to pretend actually happened. George H.W. Bush accepted several tax increases from Congress during his one term in office, taking Reagan's end-of-term top personal tax rate from 28% to 31%. Democrats agreed to spending cuts that were twice as large in dollar value in an effort to reduce the federal budget, which was in dire need of help at this point. A few years later, during Bill Clinton's presidency, another tax increase on taxpayers with higher incomes and with a cut to defense spending and welfare allowed revenue to rise and the economy to recover. During Clinton's two terms in office, which ran from January 1993 to January 2001, the United States experienced strong economic growth of about 4% annually and created a record 22.7 million jobs. During Clinton's terms in office, the United States federal budget moved into a surplus from fiscal years 1998 to 2001. Republicans and conservative think tanks insist it was the later tax cut of 1997 that resulted in Clinton's strong performance economically, and the Republicans did fight the first tax increase early in Clinton's presidency, but it passed thanks to Vice President Gore's tie-breaking vote in the Senate. 
The fact is, the economy continued to grow throughout Clinton's presidency and in February of 2000 broke the record for the longest uninterrupted economic expansion in U.S. history up to that point in time. It's hard to dispute that, although conservative pundits have tried over the years, but their formula apparently only applies to Democratic administrations and not to Republican ones, so it's basically bull feces. And since one Bush wasn't enough, George W. Bush, son of H.W. Bush, comes along. How he was handed the office of the presidency by the Supreme Court will be the topic of another podcast, but we'll just state that he didn't win the popular vote, and because the recount of the vote in Florida was ended by order of the Supreme Court before it was completed, he was handed the White House. Had the count in Florida been completed, Bill Clinton's vice president, Al Gore, would have rightfully assumed the presidency. But that was not to be. And one of Baby Bush's first acts was to, can you guess? Yep, cut taxes. Shortly after Bush assumed office in January 2001, the economy went into recession. This was in March of 2001. The following June, Bush signed the Economic Growth and Tax Relief Reconciliation Act of 2001, which reduced tax rates, reduced capital gain taxes, raised pre-tax limits for defined contribution plans and individual retirement counts, IRAs, and eliminated this estate tax, which was a huge boon to the wealthy. On Monday, August 6, 2001, Bush, while vacationing at his ranch in Crawford, Texas, received his president's daily brief, known as a PDB, which was prepared by the Central Intelligence Agency, CIA, and carried the title, quote, Bin Laden determined to strike in U.S., end quote. This PDB issued a warning regarding U.S. commercial aircraft and Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda, mentioning, quote, patterns of suspicious activity in this country consistent with preparations for a hijacking, end quote. This was just 36 days before the September 11, 2001. The Bush administration's response to this PDB was to do nothing. In their defense, then U.S. Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice and General Richard Myers said that the PDB did not warn of a specific new threat, but, quote, contained historical information based on old reporting. End quote. Oh, well then, nothing to worry about, right? So much for America being safer under Republican leadership. On September 11, 2001, the worst terrorist attack to ever occur on American soil and the deadliest in world history to date killed 2,996 people. 
19 of them were hijackers of commercial airliners responsible for the devastation and terror, and more than 6,000 other people suffered injuries. The two World Trade Center WTC towers in New York City were hit by two separate commercial aircraft, resulting in 2,763 deaths at the World Trade Center and surrounding areas. One of those deaths was a personal friend of mine, a firefighter, who died in World Trade Center Tower 1 when it collapsed. Another 189 people at the Pentagon died when yet another commercial airliner was alleged to crash into that structure, and 44 more in Pennsylvania when a fourth airliner crashed in a rural area after passengers took matters into their own hands after realizing what was likely happening to their flight after it had been hijacked. Before long, President Bush declared a war on terror, and Vice President Dick Cheney, as well as other top members of the Bush administration and cabinet, would lie to Americans and the rest of the world, stating that Saddam Hussein of Iraq had weapons of mass destruction and was determined to attack the United States, and claimed that Saddam was harboring and supporting al-Qaeda. Again, all lies. There was no connection between the attacks of 9-11 and Iraq, and the Bush administration knew it, but continued to repeat the lies. Now, you might think that it's kind of stupid to start a war after passing a tax cut and not rescinding that cut because war is expensive, but those defense contractors all have wives and they need to redecorate the Martha's Vineyard place because, well, you can't have Thanksgiving with the same interior decor as the last time you had Thanksgiving there, right? That would be tacky. And I don't want to pick on wives here or women because a lot of guys wanted their new boats or sports cars. Greed is greed. It has no preference for gender. But what's even worse is passing another tax cut after starting a war. That's just downright idiotic. But George, quote, there's an old saying in Tennessee, I know it's in Texas, probably in Tennessee, that says, fool me once, shame on, shame on you, fool me, you can't get fooled again, end quote. Bush is not just your typical idiot, that's for sure. On March 20th, 2003, the Iraq war began with a shock and awe bombing campaign. On May 1st, 2003, Bush held a nationally televised mission accomplished speech at sunset from the deck of the aircraft carrier USS Abraham Lincoln, which was operating a few miles west of San Diego, California. In attendance were sailors and airmen lining the flight deck. This was yet another spectacular lie 
as the war continued on for many years, eventually becoming the longest war in U.S. history, officially ending with the withdrawal of the last U.S. troops from Iraq on December 18, 2011. Cost estimates of this unnecessary war range from 3 to $6 trillion, which includes interest rates, but doesn't include disability compensation and medical care to U.S. troops injured in the conflict, which should add another $1 trillion or so to the cost. CBS News reported in June of 2011 that $6 billion in neatly packaged blocks of $100 bills was airlifted into Iraq by the Bush administration aboard C-130 military cargo planes. Other reputable sources state that $12 billion was flown into Iraq in 21 separate flights by May of 2004, all of which disappeared into thin air. In his report, Stuart W. Bowen, Jr., director of the Office of the Special Inspector General for Iraq Reconstruction, said the missing money may represent, quote, the largest theft of funds in national history, end quote. Deaths and injuries to Iraqi citizens is unknown, but is certainly in the hundreds of thousands in total, if not millions. U.S. military deaths total 7,075, according to the U.S. Department of Defense Casualty Status Report, dated April 18, 2022. Wounded in action totals from the same source are 53,000. 332. That's a lot of lives destroyed for a lie that has gone unpunished. George W. Bush had two terms in office, which ran from January 2001 to January 2009. During his tenure, the country suffered through two recessions, one in 2001 and another in 2007 through 2009, which has been called the Great Recession. In addition to the previously mentioned tax cut of 2001, another, the Jobs and Growth Tax Relief Reconciliation Act of 2003, was passed which focused on tax cuts that would benefit America's wealthiest, lowering taxes on income from dividends, capital gains, and things like that. Some of these cuts were set to expire after 2010, when Bush would no longer be in office, of course. You know, that way, if a Democrat were in office, the Republicans could complain loudly about the tax increases the Democrats were forcing on Americans. Yes, they're that despicable. As a parting gift to America, the Bush administration left about a year into a recession, which was preceded by all-time record-high prices at the time for gasoline and other fossil fuels. According to the International Monetary Fund, IMF, it was the most severe economic financial meltdown since the Great Depression, 
and the Republicans keep telling us how great they are for the economy. Really? Should we total how many recessions have occurred during Republican control in modern history? Oh, wait. We aren't finished yet. The Great Recession was caused by several things. The first part was the subprime mortgage crisis. A housing bubble had developed and began to burst in the mid-2000s when homeowners realized they owed more on their house than it was worth, and when confronted with balloon payments and big increases in mortgage costs, they began to abandon those mortgages. This caused a drop in the value of mortgage-backed securities, which had been getting bundled together, mixing the bad mortgages in with the good ones, and sold and resold between banks about as fast as a pirated copy of Beyonce's new album that hadn't been released yet. By September of 2008, less than two months before the elections, several investment banks had collapsed or required a bailout. Because banks were supposed to maintain a certain amount of funds on hand at all times, they weren't able to loan money to businesses, and consumers had begun to pay down their debt rather than borrowing money and then driving the economy by spending it, all resulting in the Great Recession which began in December of 2007 and maintained its grip for over 18 months, officially ending in June of 2009. Although it should be noted that many have still not recovered from the losses they suffered thanks to the negligence, greed, and illegal activities of the big banks. The American people, it should be noted, never got a bailout. And the same banks that caused the economic crash, which caused citizens to lose their jobs through no fault of their own, later had their homes foreclosed on by the very same bank responsible for their situation. And oh yeah, you'd better believe I'm doing a podcast on that. When the new president, Barack Obama, elected in November of 2008, first set foot in the White House, the economy was free-falling. The economy did not recover to pre-recession levels until 2011, and some benchmarks took until 2016 to recover. GDP fell 4.3%, or $650 billion, and finally recovered to its pre-recession level of $15 trillion in the third quarter of 2011. 8.6 million jobs were lost, a total of 6.2% of employment. But that recovered in May of 2014. Unemployment hit its peak in October of 2009 at 10% and recovered in May of 2016. It was a long, tough recovery, and as mentioned earlier, some still haven't recovered. It's important to note that the Republicans during this period focused on making President Obama a one-term president, even if it meant not helping the American people in order to make Obama look bad. This decision was made on the night of President Obama's inauguration. They didn't even give him a chance. 
Enter number 45. I don't even want to say his name, but you know who he is. He said we needed to, quote, make America great again, end quote. Yeah, well, not so much, really. The final stats? During 45's thankfully one term in office, the economy lost 2.9 million jobs. Unemployment increased 1.6 percentage points to 6.3%. 3 million people lost their health insurance. Federal debt increased to $21.6 trillion from $14.4 trillion. Illegal immigration increased. Arrests at the southwest border increased by 14.7%. Gun production escalated 12.5%. Murders were up and were at their highest level since 1997. After-tax corporate profits skyrocketed 8.5% and the stock market set new records. Oh, and corporations and the wealthy got tax cuts. So, it wasn't a loss to everyone. This isn't everything, of course. Some of the results were good, most likely in spite of 45, not due to anything in particular that he did. But again, that's a topic for another podcast. Thanks in part to Reagan, taxes paid by American billionaires have decreased by 79% since 1980. Reagan killed the Fairness Doctrine, which required the media to provide equal time to opposing views in response to editorials by station or newspaper editors or owners. The growth in disparity between rich and poor in the U.S. began during the Reagan era and has continued to grow ever since. Americans used to be able to deduct the interest they paid on credit cards and car loans, but Reagan put a stop to that. He also started taxing Social Security income, which had never been taxed prior to Reagan. Labor union membership has crashed since Reagan. Before Reagan, over a period of 20 years, the minimum wage was increased 10 times. In the 34 or so years since he left office, it's been raised just seven times. In the 1980s, around 50 independent media companies owned a majority of the various types of media across the country, whether they be television, radio, or newspapers. Today, over 90% of the media is controlled by about six huge corporate conglomerates. It's hard to keep track of because they keep merging and buying each other out. It's pretty clear that in recent history, the folks with money have used some of that money to further their own personal interests through the bribery of politicians lobbying for policies that would benefit only themselves and taking as much as they could get whenever and however they could get it from taxpayers. And when taxpayers complained, we were told lies. The question now is, how long are we going to allow this to continue? 
A small minority of very wealthy people in this country do not pay their fair share, and that comes at the expense of the rest of us. When are we going to pull their ticket and tell them it's time for them to let go so the rest of us can finally enjoy the same benefits they've been enjoying for the last few decades? The majority has the power if we'll use it. So what's stopping us? Thank you for listening. I would be grateful to you if you'd subscribe and share this podcast to let your friends and family know about it. You can also find me on Twitter at Federal Andy, and I'd be really grateful if you would follow me. I usually follow back. Be happy, safe, and healthy, and I'll hopefully be talking to you again next week. Mm-hmm.